Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. All right, hey, wherever and whenever this finds you, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar. We're here to talk a little bit about I Like Big Books. This is part of our series that talks about the Bible, how we got the Bible, some of the things that are in the Bible. This is preparation for our trip to Washington, D.C. to go to the Bible Museum as a church. If you're listening to this after 2022, you missed the trip. But hopefully we'll go again. Hopefully we'll make it uh, maybe every other year. Uh, I really like the Bible Museum. I'd like to go as often as I can. They have some great stuff down there. So what we're going to talk, but then also Pastor Kyle in his sermon two weeks ago, he said, hey, uh, talk about this. I'd love to have you do a podcast about this. And of course, uh, he always tells me to do that. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, That's one of the great things I love about him. He pushes me to get things done. I appreciate that. So here we are. We're going to kind of double up. We're talking about, I like big books, New Testament textual criticism for all you eggheads out there. And then also talking about the text of Matthew and whether it is that your brother sins or that your brother sins against you. So some exciting things to talk about tonight. Um, And I want to, like, we'll talk about some methodology as well. But let's say, for example, that you're reading in your Bible and you're reading the English Standard Version, which you can see in this left-hand column if you're using a video. If you're not, I'm going to read it to you. And it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take along one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is sort of like the classic location where we go to in Scripture to talk about offenses. So if someone does something that you just think, I I just, I don't like that. that, that bothers me, that hurts my feelings, this is the place where we go and says, hey, this is your responsibility. Hey, I don't like this that you said or did or are doing. And so you're supposed to go and talk to your brother. Now, this applies to your sisters as well. We know that the masculine pronoun in the New Testament simply refers to people, you know. So if you're a they, them, you can use it that way. So, but if, if you're doing something like this is a good reading technique, you, you have the ESV which is a little more formal of a translation. And suppose you have the NIV, which is a little more um, dynamic as a translation, and you're reading them together like a good student would. You'll notice that Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother or sister sins. Okay, but wait a minute. Okay, so it adds sister, which that's fine because we know that the masculine pronoun, the Greek, um, (laughs) <laughs> the Greek is masculine, but it's and it's okay. It's okay to add sister there. If your brother or sister sins, where's the against you? Well, it's not there in the NIV. And here's where the NIV does something very good. There's actually discussion in the scholarly community about whether that should be in there or not. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, today, this morning, whatever, whatever it is for you. It's night for me. 
we're going to talk about whether or not against you is original to the text. And you can see here, this is the Greek New Testament, uh, if you're looking, but what it says, it's got a say, which is against you, and it's got it in brackets, because the, the translation committee wasn't sure if it was original. Now, wait a minute. <clears throat> this is the Bible. This is God's word to me and to you. Are you telling me that we don't know what it says. Well, let me just reassure you and comfort you kind of right off the bat. We know what the text of Scripture says. The idea that is being expressed here, whether your brother sins, meaning that you have an obligation to take care of your brother, or whether your brother sins against you by doing something offensive to you, uh, or even insulting to you, there's other, there's other passages of Scripture that we can go to. We'll look at some of that. So theologically, there's nothing really at, at stake here. This is good either way we take it. We're just trying to be as accurate as we possibly can with the text of Scripture. And so let me just talk a little bit about how we got to where we are with the text of Scripture. So the author writes. Pretty, pretty obvious that when we have an author, they're going to write something down. And at the time this was written, Matthew is... You know, within the first century, probably very early 50s or 60s, I don't have the date right in front of me. So if you want to double check that for yourself, a Bible introduction would do that for you. Also, your study Bible right up at the beginning would do that for you. The author writes, Matthew sat down and he wrote his gospel. Now, if you want an interesting discussion about publishing works in the ancient world, I would refer you to Craig Keener's Acts Commentary, where he has an entire section devoted. It's, it's, it's a massive work. And inside that work, he talks about publication in the ancient world. So it's possible that Matthew sat down, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, read it to an audience, and the audience, people who were there, people who knew Jesus, may have offered corrections or may have offered suggestions about how to clarify things. And so he may have even revised his own work. We'll leave that can of worms for another time, because shortly after Matthew wrote, it, there were copies made. And these copies were made because Matthew's work is a work of scripture. It's, it's the Bible. And so people needed to understand who Jesus was from Matthew's perspective. It, it's an accurate picture along with Mark, Luke, and John. It's telling us who Jesus is and it's important. And so people copied it and began to distribute it. And so in those copies, what happened in the New Testament, many times these letters were copied quickly by someone reading aloud. So someone would read the text, someone else would write the text. Or even a group of people would be writing the text to make as many copies as possible. And so you'd have, now this is this is Greek, okay? So I'm going to read it for you. Unless you know Greek and can read my Greek handwriting. Hamarte say, ace say. Okay? Do you hear how that kind of sounds alike? It's got a say sound on the end and then an a say. Hemarte say a say. So if someone is reading that aloud and you're copying it, there's a possibility that you might make an error and you might omit the second or the second a say sound. 
hamartese ese, hamartese. And so some of the copies omitted ese. Now the difference in English is sins against you, okay, or sins. So that's the difference between hearing the ese and copying it as the original, or if ese wasn't in the original, and then you make an accurate copy. Now, for a time, it would be possible to go back and compare the original. So you would go back and you would say, okay, uh, you would even talk to Matthew. Hey, Matthew, when you wrote this, did you say sins against you or did you say sins? One is dealing with offenses. The other is dealing with care and concern for your Christian brother. Now, <clears throat> we don't have the original. All of the originals of Scripture have been lost to us. And you know what? That's probably what God intended, because if we had the originals, what would we do? We'd worship them, because we're like that. I mean, let's be honest. We'd have this big old shrine, and we'd go. Maybe they'd even be at the Bible Museum. We could go see them. They're not. None of the texts there are the originals. We don't have the originals. What we do have is lots and lots of copies. And so these copies are very important because we can compare them one to the other and we can say, hey, we think this reading of the text is the original for these reasons. Okay, so let me, let me just show you a little something, a couple little somethings that are so exciting for a very few people. This is the uh, 28th edition of Nestle Alon's Greek text. Ooh, I can hear you. I can, you know I can hear you, right? But if you look here, this is Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And I know if you're just listening, you can't, you can't see what I'm talking about, but I'll try to describe it as best I can. On day hamartese ese. That's okay. Hamartese ese. That's the phrase that we've been talking about. And in the text, it's set off with brackets, and there are two little symbols, one on either side. One is a hollow square, and the other is a, a slash. I don't know if it's a backslash or a forward slash. I never got that straight inside my head. So this ese is set off by those markers, and then in the textual apparatus down here at the in, in the bottom. So just like your study Bible has notes in the margins, these are marginal notes. And if we look closely um, down here, you can you can see or just follow along with me in your imagination. There's verse 15, the square box, and all of these little squiggles. This is Aleph, this is a capital B, this is 0281. This is a, um, a sort of a scripted F1. All of these marks refer to texts or families of texts uh, or even translations that you can go and refer to. Now, this first group does not include a say. So as we look back at all the different copies that we have, that we've collected through history, there are groups of them from various points in time in history that do not have a say. Okay, how good are those witnesses to the original text? That's the question that scholars have to ask. Because there's also, after this double line, there's the text that we have 
uh, that include ASEI. So there are a number of them, and you can see they're all listed out here so that scholars can go through and they can compare whether the text originally had ASEI or not, and they can critique and decide. Your, your pastor, if he's trained to do this, he can decide, he can make a decision for himself. If he's not, he can use uh, a, a helpful tool and a helpful set of tools and so I'll, I'll pull out something else. This is called a textual commentary on the Greek, uh, Greek New Testament. Again, scintillating and exciting. And what you find if you go to Matthew 18.15, what you'll find is a textual critic's opinion about this text and whether essay should be left in or removed. Okay, so what it says is this. It is possible that the words essay are an early interpolation into the original text, perhaps derived by copyists from the use of essayme in verse 21. So what the scholars are saying here, what this commentary is telling us, is that it is possible that these words were inserted into the text because there is against me in verse 21. So they knew from the context there was an against me, so they inserted what well, must be against you here. Okay. On the other hand, it is also possible to regard their omission as either deliberate in order to render the passage applicable to sin in general, or accidental, for in later Greek the pronunciation of A, A, and A was similar. In order to reflect this balance of possibilities, the committee decided to retain the words enclosed within square brackets. Okay, so they decided to retain the words in square brackets, and that's why if you look at the footnote to the NIV, it says some manuscripts sins against you. Now you remember the ESV retains against you. The NIV omits against you, representing the difference of opinion that scholars have about this text. So you don't need a textual commentary to the Greek New Testament. You, and, and if the right person listens to this, I'll get in trouble for this. You may not need the Greek New Testament. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, engage the ideas there, or maybe even, I don't know, learn Greek if you have that kind of time and if you're that kind of person. It's fascinating to unpack and, and think about the original languages. So, which one is right? Well, from here you have an educated opinion by which you can go and you can look at scholars, so you can look at commentaries and see what the commentaries tell you about essay or no essay. And what you will find is that in the, in the commentaries, you'll actually find divided opinions. You'll have some commentators who will include it, some commentators who will exclude it. I looked at the witnesses myself, and I could ride the fence on this one because there really is not a clear-cut distinction. It's not, it's not unique to the oldest texts or the best texts. So, which one is right? Well, let's talk about the textual criticism stuff first, and then we'll talk about which one's right second. 
So take a look if you're looking. But let's think also about John 5, 4. <clears throat> now, if you look in your Bible and you're using the NIV, the ESV, maybe even the New King James probably footnotes it. You look into your Bible and you're looking at the book of John, reading it as you should, because John is amazing. And you get to John 5, 3, and it says, 5, 3, <laughs> In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then there's no four. They took a verse out of my Bible. Well, who did that, and why did they do it? Well, the answer is textual criticism. It's not that someone is opposed to the Bible. This is a common meme that you'll find on Facebook that people will say, they're against the Bible. Look at all the stuff that they're taking out. No, scholars are trying to get as close to the original author's words as possible. And in the science of textual criticism, they're not taking things out. They're trying to make the text better. There hasn't been any major doctrine of Christianity changed because of textual criticism. What we find is that things are often clarified. So, where's John 5, 4? Well, good news. We have other tools that we can look at. And so, we look at other tools, and what we find is that, just like before with Matthew 18, 15, we look at the text of the Greek, and the Greek text has some marks, and we follow those marks down and look at the footnotes, and it tells us all of the different witnesses, should we choose to go through and, and find all those details, all of the different copies where we have no John 5, 4. Okay, good news, good news. We still have a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, and so we can look and see what these scholars have decided about John 5, 4. Now, these things get graded, okay? So our reading of Matthew, whether to omit a say or retain a say, was a C grade. So the scholars were uncertain enough that they didn't feel like they, had, they could take it out. So they left it in, but they also said, hey, there's some textual stuff here. And so first 5-4 in the book of John, it says omit verse. And the grade they give this is an A. So the textual scholars are in agreement that verse 4 does not belong in the Bible. It was not original to the pen of John, the writer. The commentary says this, verse 4 is a gloss whose secondary character is clear from its absence from the earliest and best witnesses. And then it lists the, the copies that we have where the verse does not appear. So these early witnesses do not appear to have chapter 5, verse 4. So it looks like a scribe who was copying it added an explanation of what was happening. Okay, the true text of the Latin Vulgate. Okay, so these are all the witnesses. The Latin Vulgate doesn't have verse 4. Uh, number 2, so reason number 1, it is absent from the earliest and best witnesses. Reason number 2, the presence of asterisks or obelai to mark the words as spurious in more than 20 Greek witnesses. So some of the scholars who copied John, they knew verse 4 was an addition, but they were so committed to the accuracy of the text 
that they included verse 4, but in the margins, they made a note. They made a little mark that said, hey, we know because we have other texts of John's gospel where this doesn't occur. We know this is an addition. They might have even known who'd done it. But they were so committed to the accuracy of the text that they had before them to making a faithful copy that they left it in. They just marked it to let other people know. Same way that we're doing today. Uh, the presence of non-Johannine words or expressions. Uh, the last four words are only here in the New Testament. So what this is, this is just adding on. This is kind of piling on. Reason number one and number two are pretty strong. Reason number three, mm, you could probably find somebody that fights about that. If that was the only reason, you might win that fight. So, but if you have one and two, then three is just adding on. And four, the rather wide diversity of variant forms in which the verse was transmitted. What this is saying is that verse five, or chapter 5, verse 4, occurs in a different way in multiple texts. And so the scholars look at these four reasons and they say, you know what, we're pretty confident that John did not include this. And that's why in your modern Bible, there is no John 5, 4. Okay, so there is a group of scholars committed to the accuracy and finding the author's original intended words so much so that they write books so that you can read them and consult them for yourself. And they have reasons for making all of the decisions that they make. You can disagree with those reasons, but you have to disagree intelligently and charitably. These people are godly men. They, they are committed to making sure that you have in your Bible the most exact copy, that, that it's as close to the words that Matthew and John wrote as is humanly possible, given that we don't have the original, but we do have lots of copies. Let's talk a little bit about the theology of Matthew. Is it whether your brother sins or whether your brother sins against you? Is it about offenses or is it about being so careful for your brother that you watch his life to make sure he doesn't fall into sin? Well, a couple things. Luke 17, 3, a little bit of a slanted parallel, same idea. And what Luke says in the ESV, uh, 17, 3 says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's the ESV. Here's where the NIV is a little different. So watch yourselves. If a brother or sister sins against you. Okay, so which reading is original to the text? Well, let's look at the Greek. Um, <clears throat> so, if your brother sins. So, there is no against you in this text. The NIV makes an addition here, probably to make it parallel or more parallel with Matthew. So, here in Luke, Luke says, if your brother sins. Now, the context may may lead you to believe that if he sins against you, that's verse 4. And there is, there is an say in verse 4, but it's not in verse 3. Maybe Luke's trying to say both. If your brother sins against you, okay, you have to handle that. But also, if your brother sins, you have to handle that too. There are other places where you can look at Titus 3.10. 
Uh, Titus 3.10 says, As for the person or a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So here it is that you you have a brother or sister who is stirring up division, and this is a sin, and then you warn him, hey, you need to stop. And he doesn't stop, then you're supposed to have nothing more to do with him. Now, if the disagreement is about the carpet color, there's no reason for you to uh, fight about that. Carpet color doesn't matter. Sorry. You could also go to Galatians. Galatians 6.1, where it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So here you have in Galatians the idea of your brother who is caught in any transgression. And so it's pretty clear from Galatians that if there is something that your brother is doing that he is not supposed to be doing, you as a Christian are obligated to go to him in order to rescue him. Now you might be thinking, but I'm not spiritual. Oh, but wait a minute. You need to be humble enough to approach your brother, taking the log out of your own eye first, of course, but humble enough to go to your brother when he's caught up in a transgression because he is sinning against a holy God. You have a responsibility to care for your brother. And so I think with regard to the Matthew text, circling kind of all the way back around, in the Matthew text, which reading is original? I don't know. And that's an educated, I don't know. I don't know because I've consulted the relevant commentaries. I've consulted the relevant uh, Greek text. I've consulted the textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. And I can't land hard on one side or the other. Moreover, the New Testament can be shown to say kind of both. If your brother sins against you, if he does something that is offensive to you, that if he causes you to sin, this is Romans 14, there's the passages in 1 Corinthians. If there's something that your brother does that is insulting or hurtful to you, you have an obligation to go to him. There's no real way around that. Because sometimes it's a you thing. And if it's a you thing, your brother should be able to speak into your life as well as you speaking into his. So I think it's if your brother sins against you and if your brother sins. Because we as Christians are called to have a deep and abiding care for the health and well-being of our brother. Now, it could be that you are not sinning and you may be able to help your brother understand. I recall a time where someone came to me and my son was playing with, he was playing with some sort of cards. And so my friend came to me and said, hey, those are, those are from the devil. And I said, okay. I said, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me talk to other Christians about it. And let me make a decision based on your input and with your help. His intention was not to come and demean me. He respected my ability to make that decision. Turns out I did not agree with him that the cards were from the devil. Um, and I, I disagreed with him after talking to other mature believers, after referencing and thinking through relevant biblical texts, and after making a decision respecting his opinion. That's the way that we're supposed to do these kinds of things. When your brother sins, you have an obligation to go and help out. But be careful, because what you point out may not actually be a sin. And if your brother sins against you, if he says something insulting or she says something insulting, then you have an obligation to go to your brother and say, I didn't like that. 
They may not have to change their behavior, but they can at least respect your opinion and learn to respect you more. Hey, I hope this finds you well. I hope wherever and whenever you are, you're doing great. And I hope that you're able to think through the, the book, the big book that God has given us with remarkable preservation, with a remarkable sense of unity and cohesiveness. The Bible is an incredible book. And as we've seen and talked through, there are things that scholars are working to get back to the original as best we can because we were given hand-copied copies. And in that multitude of copies, there are what we call variant readings. But no variant reading challenges the core doctrines of Christianity. I hope this has been helpful for you. As always, if you have questions or comments, feel free to give me a call. God bless.